Welcome to the Hillside Community Church Podcast. Wherever you're at in your faith, we hope this episode encourages you. If you enjoy the listen, let your friends know, and we'll catch you next time. Good morning. Uh, if you're just joining us, we have been in a series called uh, Life in the Big City. The book of Hebrews, the end of it which is where we are spending our time, the end of 12 and end of 13, it talks about faith as a journey, and uh, the journey sort of ends in, in, a, in a, something that's called the city, where it's eternal, and we are going to relate with God forever. And so we're on this journey trying to get there, and Hebrews is sort of citifying us, How do we live as citizens of a city that's far away and yet uh, operate here in a way that is pleasing to God, which is what happens when you come out of, when you come into chapter 13. So you remember this verse here. Here we have no lasting city. So we're seeking a city that is to come. And now we're trying to figure out how to live in that city, how to be citizens of it. And uh, I want you to see this. Actually, I want you to see this. So if you think about the end of chapter 12, this is the last two verses of chapter 12 into chapter 13. So we know 12 and 13 are connected by this word, pleasing. How do we live a life pleasing to God? So 1228 brings that up here. And then 1229, remember, ends with the idea that God is a consuming fire. And then you go into chapter 13, and it is sort of describing what it means to be pleasing to God. God is pleased with such sacrifices. We'll figure out what those are when we get there. But then the very end of the text, or the end of the paragraph, is pleasing before him. So we're talking about how in the world do we come into the presence of a holy God and please him. How do you live in the presence of God? How do you experience the fire of God in, in, a, in a way that's acceptable and pleasing to him? That's what chapter 13 is about. And we learned last week that when you, first, when you cross this line out of the fire, the first verse in there, the first verse His brotherly love must continue. And what we learned last week, and we said last week, the only way to adequately worship God, the only way to please him, the only way to uh, experience that consuming fire is to be in a radical Christian community. This is it, right here. Now, uh, So we pictured it like this. You come out of the fire in chapter 12 and you enter right into community here in chapter 13. These little lines just suggest that everything that is said in the rest of 13 requires that you be in community to fulfill it. In other words, if you can't get past verse one, the rest of 13 is impractical to you. There's no way to, to do the sacrifices that are pleasing to God unless you're in this sort of, what we said last week, a very thick, robust, healthy kind of community with other people who have experienced grace. Now, 
Uh, I showed you last week something. I never do this, so if you're a guest, um, don't freak out or anything. Uh, But I showed you that that verse is really only three Greek words. So three profound, just three words. And if you can't get past just those three words, the rest of this text is very difficult. So you've got to figure out. And what it just says is, this is brotherly love. This is the word Philadelphia. Can you see that in there, kind of? You can see it? This is Philadelphia. And this is the verb. It's an imperative to continue. Continue. Brotherly love. It's an imperative, so you say it must continue. Those three little words. Now, let me say something about these three little words. So you think of the word Philadelphia, you think about a city, and you wonder to yourself, you wish, don't you wish we had a city that, that was named actually Philadelphia that could point and show us what it was like to have brotherly love? You know, my wife's from right outside of Philly, South Jersey. She married me to rescue her, basically. I moved her to Miami, where people are holy and pure and godly. Where the NFL is at its height in Zenith. See, this is the kind of city we're supposed to be. It's a Philadelphia kind of city, but the real Philadelphia kind of city. Now, there's three things I want you to notice about these three words. There's three things about them that you need to know before we sort of get into our uh, practical piece. Number one, I'm going to do these kind of quick. Number one is countercultural. It was countercultural then to use this imagery, and it is today, and I'm going to show you how. Number one, uh, as it relates to countercultural, it's very radical. So uh, there's a writer who's an intellectual Greek writer at the beginning of the second century. So this would have been right after uh, scriptures and Jesus and right in there. He was a satirist. He was a writer and he was known for his tongue-in-cheek sort of, uh, he ridiculed, uh, criticized religion and philosophy and all kinds of stuff like that. And what he said about Christianity and what he said about Christians was this, their founder persuaded them that they should be like brothers to one another. Therefore, they despise their own privacy and view their possessions as common property. So that sort of blew his mind, and he ridiculed them for it. Because it was radical, the way they cared for each other. Today, same thing. We have an entire group of people. You know, the fastest growing political party is the unaffiliated one. The fastest growing religious movement is the unaffiliated. So we have a group of people, we have a a culture of people that say I'm spiritual but I'm not religious. I choose Jesus but not the church. It's the same thing. This is radical to this culture. Uh, We are supposed to treat, as we said last week, community like faith. You hold on to it at all costs. To lose one is to lose the other. In the mind of our author, I'll Show you how that is. At the end of the day, you can't be a city alone. A lot of people want to relate to God like that. Their spiritual life looks like this. It's just me and God. Let me just tell you how incredibly boastful and arrogant that is. How far off the mark it is 
to live like that. Uh, like, what are you asking him for? Just things for yourself? What kind of a person do you think you become? Uh, Anne Lamont, who's very interesting, always has some quip to say, thinking about this, said, you know, again and again, I tell God I need help. And God says, well, isn't that fabulous? Because I need help too. So you go get that old woman over there some water, and I'll figure out what we're going to do about your stuff. can't do it alone. It's countercultural. And if you don't cross this line, if you don't get it into your system, if you, if you don't stop having your own personal faith and realize your faith isn't just yours, then you can't please God. That's chapter 13. Second thing is it's eternal. I want to just show you something interesting about our terms here. This is the word continue. I told you that it was uh, this word right here, this verb right here from minnow. It's minnow. It's the same word in John 15. You hear it a million times, the word abide. Abide, abide, abide. It's John's favorite word. It means to continue or stay or remain. That's what the word means. Now, Hebrews uses it a number of times to talk about what's lasting. Remember, we, we, it's the same word used right here. Here we don't have a lasting city. And what's he saying about that? Whatever's here, it's not eternal. It doesn't have the, the substance and quality of eternity. It's not only that it's not going to last forever. It's that it's temporary. But it has a quality of something that's really real. That's how he uses the term. And, uh, and so when you see that word here, you go, wow, that's what he means by that word. So later in this text, in verse 14, chapter 13, he's gonna say, a lasting city. And he's gonna use that very same word. And guess what he uses right up above it before we come into this in chapter 12, you know, about our fire and all this kind of stuff. Remember at the end of... Uh, at the end of 12, there's going to be a judgment at the, end of the, at the end of time. And the writer depicts it as God's going to shake the earth one more time. And he says, I will once more shake not only the earth but heaven. Now this once more is the final one. And it's going to remove what is shaken. If it's shaken, in other words, you know how you shake things to test if it's real? That's what, that's what this is about. God's going to shake it to see if it's really real. There's a lot of people who have faith. It isn't really real. And at the end of time, he's going to shake it. He's going to see what really, what, look what he says. The, these are the created things. These are the temporal things. Things that are here that, that are not, not only not lasting, but they're not quality. So that what is unshaken will what? Say it out loud. Remain. Remain. In other words, when it's all done, God's going to shake it out and he's going to show you what was really real and what wasn't. And what's the first word he uses in chapter 13 and verse 1? Same word. That word remain 
This word right here, remain, is the very same word that comes in the next verse. Right here. So that means in 1227, you get the word right here for what ultimately matters the most. And guess what it is? Community. Same word. I'm going to shake it all. And let's see if you had community in your life. Because you can't love me and not love others. You can't be connected to me and not be connected to others. If I shake your life, is all I'm going to get out of there stuff about you? Or is there a whole lot of other people? Because that's the substance. That's what matters. So it's eternal. Faith and community must endure together. You say, I'm just hoping to make it to the end. And when he shakes me, I'm hoping I make it. Well, that's part of it. But it's not just you and your faith. It's the community too. So you need community to keep your faith going. That's what we've learned in this text. So it's not just your faith that has to continue. It's community that has to continue. They go side by side. Lose one, lose the other. This is why, you know, every once in a while, I told you, I think I told the first service last week, every once in a while, the staff will get a list of people we haven't seen in 60 days. They were giving, they were serving, they were showing up, and all of a sudden, they've disappeared off the radar. And our staff gets a list of those names. And says, does anybody know where so-and-so is? Because if they disconnect from community, usually, it's a bad sign. Usually, either something's overwhelming them or they're pulling away. That's why we get that list. And the writer of Hebrews would say the same thing. Don't you dare pull away from community. You need it to sustain your faith. That's what this whole series has been about. Uh, I have something I want to read to you, but I've been advised not to read it. And as every part of me wants to Ignore that counsel. But you got to be, it's crass. Can you handle it? All right, cover your kids' ears. Daniel Berrigan was once asked in an interview, where does faith live? Is faith more in the head or is it in the heart? The writer says his, his answer was colorful, crass, but deadly accurate. It's in neither. Faith is rarely where your head is at, nor is it where your heart is at. Faith is where your ass is at. It's where your butt is. A lot of people live their life where, hey, you know, in my heart, me and God are like this. God and I are like this. You know, in my head, you know, I think I, I visualize. I don't know if this thing's going to work again today or not. It may not. Uh, I don't know if I can. I think it's just about me. And he goes, yeah, well, if your fanny isn't over here, don't talk to me about the faith that's in your head and in your heart. Get your fanny over there. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Where's your fanny? Don't tell me about all your grandiose spiritual thoughts. I love that line. It's very, very powerful. Uh, the third thing you see about it, it's not only that it's, it's 
countercultural, but it's eternal. And number two, it's familial. That's what this, uh, the, the faith is. Let's see if we can get this thing to... Um, the word Philadelphia, this word Philadelphia right here, it means brotherly love. Um, so it's a family, sort of an unbreakable bond. That's how the people who've experienced grace is what he's saying. You need to be in a community with those people and there's an unbreakable bond with them. And it's like family. You're obligated to each other and you lose your privacy uh, with one another. And everything about family is true. All the wonders and the horrors of family. Because family can be wonderful and horrible, can it? That's how we relate. And the thing about family, somebody said, I think once, was they always got to take you back. And you know, by the time my kids were in junior high, they had all done something that was worthy of them leaving the family. By the time they were in junior high, I was like, you know, I don't think you belong here. I think you'd be better off somewhere else. That's family. But we see the best and the worst of each other, and we love each other. We accept each other, forgive each other. That's what it looks like, so it's familiar. That's what the three words mean. Now, we saw a couple of things last week uh, in this text, in a text in Hebrews 10. It says, Remember, let us hold our confession, our faith. Let's hold on to that unwaveringly. Let's hold on to it. We said, okay, that's us, holding on to our faith. But then he goes on to say, but let us, and what does that mean? Let us take thought of how to spur one another to love and good deeds. How do we spur one another to love and good deeds? Remember, we said, this is the object. Take thought of one another is the idea. Take thought of one another. And then, let's see if we can get to 24. How? How do we do that? How do we provoke one another? Not abandoning our meetings. Where your fanny is. You know what's going on. I love you for that. So there's two things here, not provoking. It's our, it's, so we can't abandon our meetings together and we need to encourage each other. Even more as you see the day approaching, as the day, the day is the end. We've all gotta make it to the end. How are we gonna do that? How are we gonna hold on our faith to the end? Meet and encourage. Does everybody see that? Does it just jump right off the page to you? just so powerful. Uh, That means I cannot provide for myself what I need to make it to the end. Does everybody hear that? You can't provide it for yourself. You and God alone is not going to work. Number one, he didn't design your faith like that. Secondly, your faith is sustained by being concerned about other people's faith. Take thought of one another. So my faith really isn't my own, and the only way to sustain my faith is to help you with yours. So uh, we're going to look at this word, encourage. That's what we have to do. We have to look at this word right here, encourage one another, because it's the word throughout the book. It's sort of the overarching punch of the book, is to exhort one another. 
And uh, the, the word is, um, and no, again, normally we don't do this, but it's an interesting Greek word. It's called, it's parakaleo. Para means to come alongside. Kaleo means to call, speak into, to call out. So you come alongside, so you can see in the imagery to encourage each other, you gotta have proximity to one another because you come alongside each other. And then on the other hand, you gotta speak into each other's lives in multiple ways. And did a lot of, just did a little, some background research on this word. There's at least three ways it's used from classical Greek on, and then especially in Hebrews, three ways. Cheer each other, challenge each other, and comfort each other. That's what all of us need to make it to the end. Somebody's got to cheer us on. Somebody's got to challenge us when we're getting wayward. And somebody's got to comfort us when we're overwhelmed. And so when, you, when we looked at Hebrews 3, which is helping us with this text, it says, brothers and sisters, see to it. That's the scripture we read this morning. Uh, that none of you have an unbelieving heart and forsake God. That's what he's concerned about. Don't forsake God. Make it to the city. But exhort, here it is again, exhort one another each day. That's how much you need it daily, like a vitamin supplement. That none of you may become hardened by sin's deception. So the Holy Spirit says, and he gives an illustration, gives an illustration. Hey, you want to see what that looked like one day? I'll show you how it looked like in the children of Israel. Do you remember that? Uh, and the Holy, the Holy Spirit says, let me tell you what happened back then. Uh, he says, don't harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the day of testing in the wilderness. Remember Israel? They came out of Egypt. They went through the wilderness. Did they make it to the promised land? Did they? No. They didn't make it. Oh, my goodness. That's, his, that's the writer of Hebrews' concern for us. Therefore, your fathers, you know what they did? They tested me. You know what that word is? Provoke. Rather than provoking one another to love and good deeds, they provoked God. They tried me. They saw my works for 40 years and missed out. Therefore, God says, I became provoked. Their hearts just kept wandering and they didn't know my ways. Wait a minute, I thought it was you and me, God. I thought we could do it by ourselves. I thought I did know your ways. No, 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 you didn't know my ways. And you wandered. Now, let's just take this imagery for a second and apply it. That's what I wanna do now. What does it mean to be in the wilderness? And I think it's a great image for every single one of us in our spiritual lives, just imagine that we live in a wilderness. Now, the wilderness he's describing is not a forest, it's a desert. Okay, nobody's going there for vacation. It's a desert. Now, I had, a, uh, I had someone, uh, one writer, speak to two things about that wilderness that we all, that are all realities that we need encouragement about. Here's the first thing about the wilderness. There's limited resources in the desert. And so just imagine we're all in, and he's kind of comparing the spiritual life to a wilderness and a desert, and we're all in one, and we're in a desert and wilderness until we reach the promised land. And his, the writer of Hebrews is saying, how are you going to make it through that wilderness? There's limited resources out there. You know what happened to the children of Israel when they got out there? They got thirsty. Remember when they got thirsty? Why? 
There's no water out there. God had to hit a rock in order for there to be water. There was no resources. So when it comes to desert living, you never think about settling down. This is a temporal city. You can't settle down here. You got you to kind of move through it. And what's really tempting in the desert sort of experience is that if you do find some little resource, you can't go ahead and build a house there because it's going to run out. There's just clearly just not enough, even if you do run into a small source. There's not enough. In other words, ultimately, it's not going to be satisfying. It's a, it's a desert. You don't set up shop there. You got to keep moving. So it's the whole idea of mirages. So you and I are living in a world that doesn't have the ultimately satisfying resources, and you and I are constantly being tempted to stop and plant around something that we have gotten our hands on. It could be anything. I remember a long time ago, there was a beer commercial out about uh, this guy through the desert, dying of thirst, parched, dry, and, and, and he's, it's kind of a Western theme, and uh, he sees out there, he sees a well out in the desert and there's snow falling right over the desert, or over the well and Kathy Ireland is sitting there in a little Christmas outfit and she's drinking a beer and he's doing this to get to it. When he gets there, it just all disappears. That's, that's exactly what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Sin is deceiving. You will see mirages. You will ever, every once in a while, you, you, you'll be attracted to another person other than your spouse. Um, and see, when you see these mirages, you see things that are appealing, and then you'll start making little compromises. You know, if we live together, we can save money. I hear that one all the time. You don't have to be married. Just live together. You can save money. You don't think that's deceiving? Some, about it, Tons of things holding a grudge. Some of us will not let go of our grudges. It just feels good to hold one. I, I don't know all the reasons why. It just feels good to have somebody in the world you don't like. I don't know. I don't know. And you'll justify it. And you'll say, no, no, I got it under control. And you'll live with that. And God despises grudges. Or, or, or you're greedy. See, what we need the reason we need to be together is because we've got to be convicted by each other's lives and provoked by each other's lives. Um, just sometimes, sometimes, just being around others challenges my life. It doesn't even have to be a formal connection. I have different kinds of connections with folks in the life of this church. Some of you I only see on a Sunday morning. And sometimes it's just peripheral vision. I just see you. You're here. And I don't know. I'm encouraged by the fact that you keep coming. That you're willing to show up here despite whatever happened to you this week and whatever you got ahead of you. The fact that you showed up is big. And I'm encouraged by it. Uh, but then I have some people that I know a little bit better. Not really well, but, but, but better. 
And we, we can encourage each other. We can have good conversations. Then I have some people I'm very intimately close to. And I couldn't survive without them. They know the best about me, the worst about me, and we can talk about anything. I got to have those three levels of it in my life or I'm never gonna survive. I gotta be around people who are faithful. I gotta be around people who are forgiving, more forgiving than me. I gotta be around people more generous than me. I gotta be around risk takers. I gotta be around people who can provide direction for me. Servants, help me to be more of a servant. I am not all those things. And so I gotta get around people who are. I have a number of generous people in my life that challenge me to be generous. I can be stingy. But the people that are in my life that are, man, I have my friends, Oscar and my dad here, two of the most generous people that I know. Uh, My father-in-law, Dave Bream, Darren Vota. These are people who don't care about money. They just convict the socks off of me. My wife came up to me, uh, my wife called me uh, last, this past week. And she said, uh, uh, somebody's on my mind. God's put somebody on my mind. We need to give to him. And I said, okay, what do you want to do? And she gave me an amount of money. And I said, well, I need to talk to Jesus about that. I probably, I probably ought to have a little conversation with Jesus about that. How about I get back to you in about three months? I'll get back to you in three months. <laughs> that didn't work. We did it. And you know, when she told me the story of her giving it to this person. I was like, oh my Lord, I would have missed out on that. It's like perfect timing. I have plenty of people in my life like that. And they're forgiving. You get around somebody who's forgiven somebody. And after I'm with people like this, I'm strengthened I get around certain people and I'm more cheerful when I leave them and I'm less selfish when I see them and I see my folly and I see my own sin and selfishness when I'm around them. C.S. Lewis said that's, that's why God works on us through others. Men and women are carriers of Christ to us. This is why I can't do it alone. Because I'm never all those things. He speaks to us in our interactions. And the deeper we go with each other, the more impact he can have. Whatever level I'm at with you, he can have an impact on me. And see, what happens is is that I I can't really know God unless I'm experiencing him through other people. That's the whole thing. It's, otherwise, I'm imagining that somehow I'm all things. <laughs> uh, since, since Oscar's here, this is my, my dad is up here, and Oscar, the one I go to Aspen with every, every year, is here as well, too. Um, so Asher is the one that allows me to come there. And uh, last year, not this year, but last year, he told, he told me that 
somebody that was been in his business for more than a decade, it was a close friend, decided to leave his business there in Aspen, start one of his own, and send out notes to people that Oscar knew and loved that made him look bad. And I remember walking through that with him. I was like, man, that just seems crazy. This is a mutual friend, by the way. We know this person very well together. And uh, I was like, wow. So this year I come back, and Oscar tells me, hey, uh, guess who's coming over tonight? And I said, you got to be kidding. What happened? What did you? What did you? How'd you? He said, I just called him and said, we need, we need to get this straight. We need to forgive each other, and I want you to know I love you. And then we spent an evening with him, and it was precious. It was incredibly awesome. But that forgiveness is rung in my head. Because if you can do that, you can do anything. Listen, there's limited resources in the wilderness you and I are walking through to get to heaven, to get to, to the city. We need each other. Second thing is there's limited appearances of God. You know, I don't know about you, but, you know, sometimes God hides. He doesn't always show up the way I wish, and I get discouraged. You get disillusioned when he does that. You think God doesn't care. How many times in the course of a day or a week do you feel that feeling? You're like, God, where are you? You get mad and you get bitter. You're not hopeful anymore. You're cynical and you get stubborn. And some of us in here are bearing incredible burdens. And sometimes it's, it's the, the burden of culture, just the whole political environment. I mean, I've had to completely unplug from it because I can't handle it. It's overwhelming. Sometimes I can overwhelm you. Just, just look out. And you're just like, overwhelmed. The second thing, or just personal pain. Some of you are crushed underneath the weight of some personal pain right now. And you're walking through a real desert and wilderness. I'll tell you one of the greatest things you can do for your faith is to get around somebody who's carrying that kind of pain with joy and faithfulness. That will change your life. You try to do that alone. One of my favorite things about the people in this church are the ones that I know who carry an incredible burden and they're faithful to God. I had a a gal, she's here today, come to my office this week. I've, I've, I've had a little window into some of the difficulties that she's experienced for decades. I met her up here at my office and I watched her get out of the car and come to the door when I when I got to the door she started to shake I thought she was going to pass out right there I said are you okay she goes I'm going to need help to a chair so I got her to a chair and we spent two hours of her describing Decades of difficulty at multiple levels. And um, 
She needed some guidance. She needed some assurance. She needed some validation. She needed to be challenged. She was right there taking it all in, and I was just overwhelmed, not only by what she's been through, by her willingness to even in the panic of it all say, tell me what I need to do. Tell me what the right thing is to do. Uh, I had a I had a buddy here recently. Uh, it, I, had to, I, I spent actually a couple months thinking, how am I going to have this hard conversation with him? I'm going to lose my friendship over him, over it. We had a two-hour meeting. We didn't talk for four days. When we finally did, he said, you know, if you'd have called me two days ago, I'd have said, I'll never want to talk to you again. But now I'm calling you, and he said, with tears. I needed you to say those things to me so bad. In fact, I've had an encounter with God that I would have never had without you saying those things to me, and I've only had two of those in my entire Christian life of more than 30 years. Now, here's what I want to say to you, Hillside. I wrote it down like this. God may not always be very visible to us in our lives. But here's what I wrote. He always shows up through you. He always shows up through somebody in my life. And here, if I didn't run into you, I might think God's not there. If I didn't run into you in this moment, in this time, for this purpose, I might think God isn't there. But thank God you walked into my life. There are many Sundays I don't want to be here. I don't know if you know that. And then there are many Sundays, I don't mind being here, but I wish I didn't have to talk. I'd I'd give anything not to have to give the talk. But then I run into you. Some of my favorite people in the world. And you, you give me something I don't have. I can't muster up myself. My wife and I are going through some tough stuff. But I want you to know something. We're not doing it alone. We're not doing it alone. Uh, One of the guys I read this summer, Ronald Olhauser, said this. Whatever does not kill you makes you stronger. That's true, though oftentimes they will kill you if you face them alone. And I know you don't always want community. You have to fight for it. You got to march into it. There's an energy in you that wants to run. There's an energy in you that wants to isolate yourself. There's an energy in you that does not want accountability. Does not want to face stuff. You just want to run. You do it at home and you do it at church. And your life will literally close in on you. If you keep that up. 
Listen, whenever we're together, whether it's this big group right here where you don't know everybody, maybe you know no one in here. You got to remember, we're all trying to get through a wilderness that doesn't have enough resources and God doesn't always show up the way we want it to. How in the world are we going to survive? God says we got to have each other to do it. Or it's not going to happen. So, whenever we're together, what if we did exactly what writer of Hebrews is saying? We considered, this is, this is the verse, let's see if I can find it in here. We took thought of one another. That's the object, by the way. Take thought of one another, then how to pursue. What if we took thought of one another? And what I need to see when I see you is, you're walking through the same desert I am. You do not have all the resources. I don't care how you look. My son sent me a great photo this week. I never knew this about owls. See if you knew this about owls. You ever seen legs like that in your life? This is why most churches don't wear shorts. Because that's what we really look like, but none of us ever see it in each other. And what if we just walked up to each other every now and then and said, do you see what I look like? I always thought their feet just kind of like penguins fell right off their bodies right here. I feel so, I felt so stupid. We all come in here fully covered. Fully covered. And nobody ever sees. What I have to do is I got to, I got to sort of imagine what you look like with your feathers moved. (laughs) And realize You do have limited resources. No one in here that's got it all. I don't care how they look. They might look all together. But every single one of us are trying to figure out how to make it to the end. And some of us are overwhelmed because sin is seducing us. Some of us are overwhelmed because we're just broken under the pressure. And there's not a person you're going to walk by there's not a person you're going to look in the eyes. There's not a person you're going to shake hands with. There's not a person you're going to talk to this morning. That's not right there. You might say something to them. Just knowing you're here might be enough. All right. I'm reading David Brooks' book, Second Mountain. He's that op-ed writer. Tim Duff introduced me to David Brooks. He's uh, an op-ed writer for New York Times and uh, written some great stuff. And he's written a book called Second Mountain. And uh, uh, tells the story of, of, of a book he's reading about E.O. Wilson, who's a naturalist. And he talks about the day he became an, a naturalist. He was five years old. His father took him to the ocean for the very first time. 
And uh, when he got there, he said he saw a jellyfish. And it was the first time he had ever seen a jellyfish. And so he remembers everything that happened to it. And everything in his life changed at that moment. He knew what he wanted to do with his life. He knew everything. Because he couldn't believe what he saw. And uh, Wilson describes, he says, you know, when you're a kid, you see animals. Um, and they're twice their size through a kid's eyes. And Brooks makes the observation. That's how it ought to be when we see each other. When we see each other is twice the size. In the good way. Twice the size. In other words, you're that big, that valuable, that overwhelming. Because it might, it might make you move toward them in a way that's different. Provoke one another to love and good deeds, he'll say, or we're not going to make it. Father, we need you so desperately today, and needing you, we're reminded we need each other more than we can find. Help us to be what we need to be for each other. Some of us right now are overwhelmed today. Help us to think about the other people in the room. Help us to think about others from the moment right now that we open our eyes to the moment we leave this campus. And imagine every single person here struggling to get by. Who need you, but need us in order to get resourced by you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.